0: So we're in the month of love. Hopefully you did not forget Valentine's Day on Thursday. I'm sure by now you were reminded of it if you happen to forget. And so as we walk through February, we're thinking about relationships. And, uh, you know, we've been discipled by culture in a lot more ways than we have been by God's Word. And one of those ways is in the area of relationships and sexuality. So we're just walking through a series of just rethinking it from a biblical perspective... Um, what the, God's Word actually says, not only in His Word, but as He's created us, we'll never agree with somebody about sexual issues if we have differing worldviews. Like, if we look at the world differently, a couple was at home, and they had an afternoon free, and they said, hey, do you want to go do some exercise? And they said, sure, I'll meet you down at the front door in ten minutes. So uh, he came down wearing his golf attire, and she came down wearing a tennis outfit, uh, they were looking out different rooms, windows in the house. She was looking out to the tennis courts, and he was looking out to the golf course. And we'll never agree with people if we're looking at the world differently. We'll, we'll, dis- we'll disagree with fellow Christians as well... ...if we have different beliefs about God's character and about the authority of the Scripture. And so we just want to come today and land at a place where we can uh, stand on God's Word... ...and, and kind of have a, a, a similar worldview of what does it mean to think about our humanness, our createdness... A.W. Tozer said this, The question before us, and the question that really matters, is simply, What do you think of Christ? And what are you going to do with Christ? Every question we might have can be boiled down to the subject of Jesus Christ. You know, every sexual question begins and ends with God. It starts there and it ends there. Before what we know and what we believe about sex, we must begin, first of all, ...with what we believe about God. And so today we're going to set the foundation... ...the premise of what is it that we believe about God... ...what is it that we build our lives on... ...as it comes to a relationship with Him. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 to 5 says this... ...Listen Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one... ...love the Lord your God with all your heart... ...with all your soul and with all your strength. Moses is telling the Israelites... ...before they enter into the promised land... ...to love who? Him? No, to love the Lord... Moses is saying, I'm not the Lord. The Lord is Lord. You need to love him with all that you have. With your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. It's just a way of saying everything you have, you need to love Jesus with that. God is supreme and he calls us to surrender our hearts, our souls, and our strength in adoration to him. So everything that we live and do in life, we surrender to him. And the same is true when it comes to sexual discipleship. Our beliefs about everything, including our sexuality, must be rooted in the truth that there is one God, one source of authority. We fall short of understanding His purpose for our lives in our postmodern culture. Everybody has truth that's true for them, and what's true for you is not true for me. And so I can define my own truth, I can define my own reality. And so we don't really trust God as the source of our authority We don't really trust him as the sole source of our authority because we have been discipled by culture to say, well, that's that's okay for you, but I'll define my own authority and my own truth. You know, it's a modern problem, but it's not new. In Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, the verse is on your notes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And what does it say at the end of that verse? Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Or everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this isn't a new problem. It's a very old problem that even thousands of years ago, people thought that they knew better than God. You know, the book of Judges, if you think it's a crazy time in our world today... You need to go back and read Judges. It was cray-cray back then. I mean, people were berserk. It'll help you put things into perspective. And the reason why was because they didn't have a sole source of authority. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's right for me and what's right for you Their love for God was mixed with a pagan mixture of thinking, and their love for God was not pure to Him as the Lord. You know, Paul wrote a similar description in Romans chapter 1. Look at the verse on your notes. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged, look at this, the truth of God for what? A lie. And they worshipped and served what has been created, instead of the Creator who is praised forever amen. So the cultural time in Judges and the cultural time in Romans all boils down to the very same thing, and it happens in our day today. It's a rejection of God as our Creator and Lord. It's a rejection that he gets to call the shots. It's a rejection that he is the authority in my life, and I don't get to just decide whatever I want to do. You see, both groups, those in Judges and those in Romans, had a form of worship and spirituality that included God, but it also added something else. It was God plus something. That's what we have in modern Christianity today. It's God plus something. Now, we don't tend to worship reptiles and ...and birds or stars... ...but we do worship humanity... We make the opinion of others above God. We make the intellect of others above God. We make the approval of others above God. We don't always uh, worship uh, created things, but we elevate our reasoning, don't we, sometimes as equal or greater than God's wisdom. We look for truth. Where do we look for truth? We look for truth inward instead of upward. We say, well, whatever feels good to me, whatever is right for me, and so we are adding something to God, whether it's our feelings Or uh, uh, the opinions of others, or or the uh, uh, you know cultural conditioning. We pretend to look the other way, and then we form our own opinions about things. And we especially form those sexual opinions about things by saying, "Well, I just need to be true to myself. I need to uh, accommodate cultural shifts." Listen, before God ever told us to love somebody else, what did He say? You love me first. Before God ever said, love somebody else, the first and greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the difference there is what? I love God with everything. Oh, and by the way, I'll love you like I love myself, right? It's it's, it's this all-consuming love for God. And so that's what God said, you love me first and then you love other people. So if he is the creator, he expresses, right, the purposes and the parameters in his creation. So the Bible says that in uh, Genesis 1:27, God created man, what, in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So the first of some rethinking we need to do, of some beliefs that we need to have, is this. Is that God created our sexuality. Now there's two possible lenses that we can look through in life. That either sexuality represents a personal expression of identity and feelings, or it's an intentional aspect of God's creation. But I can't have it both, right? I can either look at it as it's just a personal expression of who I am or God has a design and God has a purpose for it. We are either free to choose whatever we want to do or we can say, you know, I need to discover what God's purpose is for this, how God has created this. You see the choice ultimately boils down to whether we acknowledge God as the creator of all that we are including our sexuality. So he is the creator. Further in Genesis chapter 2 it says this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Our gender and our sexuality are all part of God's work creating human beings in his image. This is Genesis 1 and two before three you know what happens in three the whole world goes haywire in genesis three so this is genesis one and genesis two and the bible tells us that god has created that as part of who we are you know there are some things that are sacred about you just from the fact that you are a human created in god's image one is your ethnicity and one is your gender You are created by God. Those are sacred things in our lives. And so God has a part of his creation and it teaches us something. And so he designed sexuality to be written not only in his word, but in our anatomy. Our anatomy tells us something about who we are. But our spirits are so rebellious. We want to do it our way. ...because we have a greater God. you know what our greater God is today? Happiness. I just want to do whatever makes me happy. I want to do whatever feels good... ...and I don't want to submit then to God as the Lord of my life. And so many people today... ...they view uh, biblical sexuality as old school. It's no longer relevant for today's society... ...because it's primarily viewed... ...as a form of human expression... ...rather than a design of our Creator... If your sexual choices don't hurt someone, why should they be considered immoral is what our culture tells us today. There's data from the General Social Survey says this, 57% of respondents ages 65 to 89 to the survey in the mid-1970s, okay, so this is a long-term survey, 57% of 65-year-olds to 89-year-olds back in the 70s said premarital sex was always wrong. In 2002, the figure dropped to 39% in the same age group. It's now the minority opinion of even the oldest Americans. In 2017, Gallup said 69% of Americans say that it's morally acceptable to have sex outside of marriage. In fact, waiting until marriage was considered not just quaint, but quite possibly dangerous. Now, when we started this series, he said, this isn't just for young people, this is for everybody We've all been discipled by the world. Did you catch the age group? 65 to 89%. It shocks the socks off of me to hear older people's views on sex. I'm like, what? Then I remember, oh, you grew up in the 60s. You probably don't remember most of the 60s, but you grew up during that time, right? And so what happens is, then that comes down to the next generation and the next generation. And so now it's looked as antiquated and outdated, but it's not. It's because it's part of who God is. You know, Justin Bieber got in trouble. uh, Not for all the trouble that you think he got in trouble. He got in trouble because he said that he abstained for sex for one year before he got married to get closer to God. He also said his new wife had saved sex for marriage, which is one of the reasons they got married so quickly. They went to the courthouse. Now they're planning a big Wedding ceremony. But here's the here's the response. In the UK Telegraph said, celibacy before marriage is a terrible idea. Justin Bieber shouldn't preach it to his fans. Perhaps you're rubbing your eyes and you're like, what in the world? You just read that. But uh, Rebecca Reed, who penned the column, said this. As far as I'm concerned, before you marry someone, you need to do four things. Yeah, you know where this is going. Go on holiday for at least a week. See each other through illness, bonus points if it's from food poisoning. Build something flat in your, in, your, in your flat. Build something in your flat or your apartment, she's from England, and have sex. So she said you need to do four things before you get married. Get sick together, build something together, go on vacation together and have sex. And here's what she says. Sex is a vital part of marriage. And the only way to know if you're going to have good sex is by trying it out. Yes, try it out. It's kind of like test driving a car. You go to the, uh, the car dealer and you try it out. And you're like, this car doesn't really fit. I don't like it. I'm going to try another one. And this is the cultural view. This is where we've been discipled by the world. You just, you just try it out. Except you're going to end up with a used car yourself, right? If that's all the world does is try out cars. Nobody's ever going to drive a brand new car. Do you know what I mean? We're all going to end up with used cars, if that's the prevailing wisdom of the world. So for Christians, morality is not based on not hurting someone, but out of our reverence for the Creator and His design and His intentions. Our choices are first and foremost moral, because they either yield to God's wisdom or they don't. We often change how we interpret the Bible based on our surroundings. Something happens to me in my life, and then all of a sudden, I throw that back onto God's Word. And I'm like, well, God's Word really doesn't say that. Up until this happened in my life, I was sure God said that. But now that something has happened in my life, well, you know, God really didn't say that. Psalm says this, Psalm 119. Lord, your Word is forever. It's firmly fixed in heaven. Your faithfulness is for all generations. You established the earth and it stands firm. Your judgments stand firm today, for all things are your servants. The psalmist says, What? God, your word, what? Stands firm. We might change, culture might change, but God's word doesn't change. A.W. Tozer also says this, it's a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation such features as he in his ignorance deems objectionable. We need not fear to let the truth stand as it is written. Believers in the world today are going to be weird. We are going to be looked at as odd. We are going to be looked at as strange. We are going to be looked at as antiquated, as old-fashioned, as prudish. Whatever you want to call it, so be it. It is not God's word that's changed, but it's the culture that has changed, and we stand on God's word. If God created our sexuality, His intentions in His word have not changed over time. If God is not the creator, then we are free to define sexuality however we see it. But many Christians want it both ways. We profess faith in God, but we reject the design of His creation. We can't have it both ways. There have been shifts in our thinking. Daniel Heinbach, the professor, professor of Christian ethics, says this. We have shifted our thinking from making the sexual experience consistent with the character of God to making sure the character of God is consistent with sexual experience. We've shifted from interpreting sex according to the Bible to interpreting the Bible according to sex. We have shifted from worshiping a God who became flesh to worshiping flesh that becomes God. And we have shifted in our thinking, and we need to have a new rethinking. Every aspect of our humanity, including gender, has been affected by the fall. There has always been confusion, either biologically or environmentally related to gender. What has changed now is how we understand it. Instead of recognizing gender confusion as a heart-wrenching disorder of God's design, our culture has begun celebrating gender fluidity. Dr. Paul McHugh, professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University, said this, 80% of children will outgrow their gender confusion and develop to accept their biological gender. And we have people who are changing 10-year-old boys into 10-year-old girls. And giving hormones and giving all kinds of things, when they will outgrow that. Why? Because that's how God has created us. And so here's the beauty of God's design. It works. <laughs> God's design works. You see, the, the the psychological and the sociological findings show that that getting marriage and keeping sex within marriage. Guess what? It's good for us, right? There's bonding chemicals that are released. However, it has the exact opposite, right? Particularly for women. That they are more depressed and they have more me- uh, mental health issues with more sexual partners. It just doesn't work. And we think, what, what isn't working in my life? And we say, well, you know what? It's just this guy. Or it's just this woman. So I just need to get a new one. And God's like, wait a minute. I didn't design you for this. It's not working because there's no way it is going to ever work. Christopher West said this, we are free in a sense to do whatever we want with our bodies. However, we are not free to determine whether what we do with our bodies is good or evil. Therefore, human freedom, choice, is fully realized not by inventing good and evil, but by choosing properly between them. You see, my choices don't allow me to choose whether it's good or evil. I just have a choice which one I'm going to do. So normalizing sin and brokenness only make us sicker. And we have to rethink, right? So God has created our sexuality. The second premise, or the second thing that we have built our lives on is this, is God's love doesn't mean He ignores our sin. He saves us from it. Now, the modern interpretation of God's love is this. It's humanistic. It's a self-serving light that frees us to live however we want. And throughout the history of the Christian church what God's love meant was that he doesn't blindly overlook our sin or he doesn't blindly accept our sin but we have misin we have misinterpreted and reinterpreted God's love now there are two ways we do that and within the church especially sometimes we reinterpret God's love to uh, interpret it to mean we have to earn it and so I will live my entire life, being a, trying to be as good as I can, following all the rules, so that so that I can earn God's love, right? And so I get I end up in this legalistic works based faith where I just feel like I have to earn God's love. And boy, He might love me this morning, but I don't know about this afternoon. And, and so that's one misinterpretation of it. But the but the more modern misinterpretation of God's love is this: God wants me to feel happy. He wants me to be complete. He wants me to be fully accepted as I am. Uh, God is just the person that pats me on the back and says oh you're not so bad you're fine listen while god loves us just the way we are he does not accept us just the way we are our sin is offensive to a holy god romans 5 8 says this God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, right? Christ died for us. There is no scripture that God's main purpose in life is for us to be happy. We are to be holy. Yes, we will be blessed. But all those are different than the way the world has reinterpreted God's love. You see, what God's love does is God's love saves us from sin at a great expense. To believe That Jesus' love allows us to redefine human brokenness as healthy and human sin as moral is really heresy. For us to say that this is not sin and this is not brokenness is really to redefine God's holiness. You see, if our sin was as benign as we think it is, if it was as harmless as we think it is, then Jesus didn't have to suffer and die. If our sin was just a little cold, Jesus didn't have to suffer and die. But it isn't just a cold, it is a life-threatening cancer that infects our very being. And so for us to dismiss it and say, well, love is the ultimate of everything. And because God is love, he just winks his eye and overlooks everything. is to redefine, majorly, drastically redefine God's love as the church has understood it through the years. God loved us by providing us a way to be pure and holy. In John chapter eight verse eleven, a woman was caught in adultery, and they brought her before Jesus. And they said, according to the law, she should be stoned. And Jesus, remember what Jesus did? He got down on the ground and he was writing. You know, and uh, and uh, he said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. The older ones left first, because they're the ones with the more wisdom, right? And so they left, and they left, and then there was only Jesus and the woman. And all the accusers were gone. Jesus says, where are they? In John chapter 8, verse 11, no one, Lord, she answers. And here's what Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but go now and sin no more. So we see what Jesus did. He said, I don't condemn you, but I'm not saying what you were doing was okay. He's not saying, oh, it's fine to go back to what you were doing. Jesus said, I'm not going to condemn you, but I'm not, I'm not also going to say it's okay. And that's the love of God. The love of God in Christ is we don't have any condemnation, but it's also that God's like, I, I can't say what you're doing is okay. Just because it makes you happy. Just because it makes you feel good. You see, God doesn't allow us to be uh, bitter and angry because we've been wronged. God doesn't say, well, you you are absolutely justified for your road rage and all that stuff because you were wronged. God never says that. God doesn't allow us to be judgmental because my sin doesn't look as bad as someone else's. God's like, you know what? According to the other guy, you're not such a bad sinner. You're a pretty good guy. So yeah, you go ahead and be judgmental all you want. When you get to his level, then you need to stop. God doesn't do that. What does God say? Don't judge. And so it's the same way in our uh, in our sexuality, in, our, in the, in the createdness. God just doesn't approve of it just because we are true to ourselves. And just because it's something that makes me feel good, it makes me feel happy. You see, God's love works differently from our modern understanding, right, of a, of a, of a God who just winks at bad behavior. There's a term that describes God. It's, a, it's called immutability. Immutability. You know what that is? Immutability means that God does not change. For God to change, something would have to happen. He would have to go from better to worse, from worse to worse to better right or he would have to go from immature to mature you see for god to change one of those directions is going to have to happen but god is god he does not change he is totally self-sufficient he is totally all-wise He is totally all-powerful there is nothing for god to change because there is no point a to point b to get to with god and that's the god who is from genesis 1 up until february 17 2019 it's still the same god and so he's still the God who views sin and views morality in the same way. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't grade on a curve, right? He isn't swayed by cultural thought. He doesn't look down and say, oh, yeah, you Corinthians and you Americans, you Europeans, whoever the, you know, the, the, uh, the looser cultures are in the world today, I missed it. You are absolutely right. I'm going to change my mind about what I think because I see you're so happy. I see you're so fulfilled. That's not all that God sees. What does he see? He sees the brokenness and he sees the despair and he sees the hurt. He sees the harm. He sees the emptiness and the loneliness and the brokenness in each and every human heart. And so God doesn't wink at it and God just doesn't close his eyes because it's hurting us and it's literally killing us. You see, it's not our job to make the Bible or Jesus more attractive to modern minds. It just isn't. We are living in the greatest time in history. We cannot hide as believers anymore. You know, in the 1950s, you could hide as a believer? You could get dressed up. You got in your car Sunday morning. And where did everybody in the neighborhood think you were going? Church. Today, people think you're probably going to brunch church why are you so weird going to church we are at a the the best possible time right this is where the rubber meets the road and god's calling out his people god always had a remnant god always had a few right that loved him and this is the best possible time to be a a, a believer that's uh, teaching the gospel we don't have to fit in we don't have to be liked we don't have to be loved by the world because we're already loved by god we're already accepted in jesus You see, our job is not to make the Bible more attractive. Our job is to bow before a holy God. Lord, you're the one that created this. Lord, you're the one who has given the parameters for your creation. The third thing is this. Jesus is not boss. He is Lord. Now... The word Lord gets lost in our modern culture. So the closest we may experience it is to a demanding boss or employer, right? Uh, some For some kids, like you, you, your parents are the boss, right? I tell my kids all the time, I'm the boss, right? And so you dictate to your, uh, a boss dictates to the employees, a parent dictates to the children, but only for a certain amount of time. So if you if your kids are like 40 years old and you're still the boss of their lives, they are going to resent you. They're just right. If you go home on the weekend and your boss shows up at your doorstep with a file folder box of work for you to do, you're not going to be very happy. Why? Because the limit of the boss only it's only when I'm on the clock the limit of the parenthood is when the kids are adults, right? Not that we don't have wisdom or you know what I mean. And so we view Jesus the same way. We say Jesus, you're the boss just like my boss and like my parents. And when my parents are gone and I got the house free for the weekend, whoo-wee. Call the neighbors, right? That's how we view God, that he only, has, he only has authority over a certain area of our lives, just like our boss, our employees, and our parents. Listen, if Jesus is Lord, it means that we've given him our very lives in response to the fact that he's given us life. We give him all that we have. We wake up every day um, with the attitude of surrender. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Father, you if you are willing, take this cup away from me. But what did Jesus say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, this, is the, this was the conflict from Genesis 3 in the garden to my heart and your heart. My will or thy will. Really, isn't that the issue? Whenever we get in trouble, it's always what? My will be done, not thy will be done. Whenever our kids get in trouble, it's because their will wanted to be done and not my will, Right? Whenever we get reprimanded at work, it's because I wanted my will to be done and not the employer's will. But Jesus modeled that, Father, not my will, but your will be done. If we're honest, we typically treat Jesus as our boss rather than our Lord. You only have authority over this certain area. This area over here, I'm going to keep it off. No, I'm going to reserve this for my personal choices and often in our contemporary culture that includes our sexuality. Jesus, you can be Lord over this. Oh man, I want Jesus to be Lord over my finances. Because whoo-wee, I want a harvest, right? I want the blessing to overflow. I want my vineyards to be uh, growing. right? We want, to give, we want to give Jesus that. Lord, we want to give Jesus our health, because we don't ever want to get the sniffles. We want to give Jesus, but, oh, sexuality? Uh, no, Jesus, that's not yours to have. He's treating Jesus like the boss. Not the Lord of our, our lives. Kenny Luck coined the term sexual atheism. Nearly 9 out of 10 self-proclaimed single Christians are, in practice, sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on the subject of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It's the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them in all things can also believe simultaneously that he should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. He says, it reminds me of the famous red letters in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's a disconnect between identity and activity. We are embodied beings. Your body Matters. You are, just, you are not a spirit trapped in a body just waiting to escape planet Earth to get to heaven. God created us human beings. Your body matters. Your physical matters. How do we, why do we know that it matters? Because Jesus was born in a body, right? Jesus was crucified in a body. Jesus rose in a body. Jesus is coming back in a body. We are going to be resurrected in what? A Volkswagen Beetle? No, a body. It matters. So, from Eden to Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two, we are embodied people—mind, and body, spirit—all working together. What if for one week, man? This is. Let me tell you, I was working on this last week, and I, I'm like, maybe next week, Lord. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. But what if, what if for one week, we surrendered every thought, feeling, and behavior to the Lordship of Christ? So I went through my calendar, I'm like, maybe 2024, a good year for this, maybe 20. But what would happen if we did that? What if everything you said, everything you thought, everything you watched was filtered through the Lordship of Christ? Then we say, Lord, you've got everything except my remote control. Lord, you've got everything except my computer. Lord, you've got everything except my social media, right? What would happen in our lives? How would our attitudes change toward our spouses? How would our attitudes change toward our smartphones? How would our attitudes change toward our coworkers? right? It sounds radical, but that's what the Christian life is. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What do we do? We deny ourselves, take up the cross, was the instrument of execution, put the little, you know, we take up our electric chair, our... Uh, Drugs, whatever they do today, if they do it at all, right? Jesus said, you take that up, because you what? You die to yourself. You see, uh, no one will force us to call Jesus Lord today. Nobody will. But we are promised that one day, what's going to happen? Every knee will bow, and every tongue confess what? Jesus is Lord. And so he gives us the option. He says, I will give you the choice to do it today freely, or one day you're going to have to do it by force. So it's up to us to do it freely. Calling Jesus Lord today means this. I've given up the right to my own life. Talk about countercultural. Talk about, "Mm, not sure I like that. We're all about our rights. We're all about what I want. We're all about, you can't tell me what to do. And I want to do whatever I want as long as it's not hurting anyone, right? but, But giving up our rights is what it means to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Uh, real quick, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is exactly what the context that Paul talks in. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, starting in verse uh, 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. And so Paul, in this context right of, of sexual morality, says this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of who? The Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit's job is? To make us holy. It's not that difficult. His job is to make us holy. You are, your body's a temple of this Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. And then look what he says. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. What was that price? Jesus, right? dying on the cross the blood of jesus you were bought at a price so glorify god with your body see what paul's saying is this paul says this you believer as a as a believer god himself is living in you and the way that you have this great gift is that there was a price that was paid and the price is jesus listen jesus paid it all he just paid it all he paid for your sin but he also paid for you It often uh, comes up in conversations about people who have uh, sexual desires and sexual things. Um, You know, why would God ask someone to deny such uh, desires for a lifetime? It seems hypocritical or unfair, right? And we've, in the church, if we're not careful, we've elevated uh, particular sins above other sins. We've elevated, said, these sins are worse than these sins. And so I'm going to apply a different measure to you than I'm going to apply to these other sins. But Russell Moore says this, if we're going to preach that sort of gospel. And that sort of gospel is this, is these sins are worse than these sins. And as long as you do the respectable sins, we're not going to challenge you to take up your cross. We're not going to challenge you to deny yourself. But, oh man, don't be in this category. Because if you're in this category, we are going to judge you, and we are going to criticize you, and we are not going to offer the hope of the gospel to you. And Russell Moore says this, if we're going to preach that sort of gospel... We must make it clear that this cross-bearing self-denial isn't just for sexually tempted Christians. It's for all of us. Because that's what the gospel is. If, he says, your church has been preaching the American dream with eternal life at the end and Jesus as the means you use to get all that, you don't have a gospel that you can reach your gay and lesbian neighbors or anyone else for that matter. You see, if we're just just preaching the gospel of respectability, that Jesus is the means for us to get those streets of gold and the new heavens and the new earth, and he doesn't really ask us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross, we don't have a message that we can preach to other people. You see, the gospel affects us all. Every morning, all of us need to remind ourselves of the gospel, that I am a sinner saved by grace, God loves me. He paid the debt through Jesus. Jesus what? Jesus paid it all through him. But there are also folks who say, you know what? I don't need the gospel. I'm not that bad of a person. I do everything pretty much well and correctly. I go to work and I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. And so, Lord, you are right. I'm on your team. We all need the gospel. It's not just for somebody else. It's first and foremost to us. ...and for us. Every day, I have to preach myself the gospel. You know why? Because I'm a sinner. And so are you. We all fall down. We all make mistakes. We all sin. And we all mess up. And we all fall short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, the debt has been paid. And there's a, a power in my life... ...that I can now live through the surrendering of my life to Jesus. Surrendering our life to Jesus as Lord... means what? ...we value His life and His truth... ...over personal opinions... And experiences. There are some hard things that God does and some things that He allows or some things that He doesn't allow. And I don't understand it. I just don't. There are some... God does some things, but here's one thing that I've found out. I am not on a need-to-know basis with God. God doesn't say, Jeff, I'm going to do something. Can I have your approval? He doesn't say, I'm going to do this. You may not understand it, but I'm going to tell you everything so you understand it. Here's the thing. When God and I disagree, He's always right. That's just food for life. When God and I disagree, He's always right. doesn't matter if I understand it. It doesn't matter if I uh, know what's going on. God is God, and I'm not. You see, sexuality presents challenges to what we believe about God. Will we worship Him as our Creator? Does He get to call the shots? will we respond to his love as revealed in the Bible, right? The the love of God who sent Jesus to rescue us from sin. We don't say there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as brokenness. That's why Jesus came. And then we bow to him as Lord of our lives. A.W. Tozer also said this. We want to die on the cross. But at the last minute, we always seem to find a way to rescue ourselves. Nothing is easier to talk about than dying on the cross and surrendering ourselves, but nothing is actually harder than doing it. Talk is cheap, but the walk is what really matters. <laughs> Isn't that true? I find myself doing that all the time. Lord, I'm going to die on the cross. i want to surrender my life. I want to be a living sacrifice. And as soon as I get close to that altar to be a living sacrifice, I'm like, mm-hmm, I got somewhere to be. I got to go do something. Lord, I'm going to surrender my life in, uh, to you on the cross. And see, you know, right, 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 when I get to that moment, and somebody's picking up the, the hammer and the nail to put me there. I'm like, oh, I got to Maybe let me rethink this. Your love, after all, <laughs> you understand. And so I'll be back. And we get close and we back up. And we get close and we back up. And so Jesus just calls us to surrender the rights to our lives to him. Do you know why? He created us. And it works. It absolutely works. My way is not God's way. God's way is God's way. So if we come time to prayer, time of decision, uh, just all, would you do those couple things? Just say, Lord, I've not worshipped you as creator. I've, I've been wanting to call the shots. It's been you plus something. My wisdom, my friends' opinions, my social media feed pop culture, pop psychology, pop rocks, whatever it is. Lord, I've been letting all that stuff in. Would you respond to God's love as it's revealed in the Bible? God's love doesn't say, you know what, you're okay just as you are. No, God's love says, I love you as you are. And because I love you, I sent Jesus to rescue you from your sin so that you can live the abundant life that I've come to give you in Jesus. You know, God desires far more for us than we desire for ourselves. He absolutely does. Would you bow before Jesus as Lord? We freely have the opportunity to do that. One day we won't have that option anymore. It'll be done. But to say, Jesus, my, my life is Lord. Your, life, uh, your Lord of my life means I surrender to you. Here's what Jesus is not saying. I expect you to do it all perfectly from this moment on. I I expect you never to mess up again. No, that's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? I bought you at a price. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. And if you yield and surrender to him, I'll give you the power to do what you need to do. But my blood still covers your sin. The enemy always has two tactics we looked at last week. Deception and accusation. Deception is, you surely will not die. Do what you want. But accusation is, after you do the thing, and you find out there really is death involved, then the enemy says, see, you're stupid. You messed up. God will never rescue you. And the truth is that God's truth sets us free. And in Jesus, we are free from accusation. You know, Christians should be the most unoffended people in the world. We should be the, 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 the least offended of anybody in the world. Do you know why? Because the one who has an accusation against us says, there's no condemnation for you. It's been paid in, price, in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure where you're at in your walk with the Lord, and as you come to Him today, worship Him as Creator, respond to His love.